Hello and welcome to the Barry Blab episode 2. Today is a simulcast episode that I did over on the Steel City Strings podcast. Enjoy this interview with violinist Cedar Rose Newman. Hi, welcome to episode 5 of the Steel City Strings podcast. My name is Jeremy Bolton, manager of Steel City Strings, and today I'm going to be speaking with violinist Cedar Newman. Cedar grew up in a family of strong musical tradition. She was inspired to learn the violin by her aunt, who would spend hours playing the works of Vivaldi and Bach on her great-grandmother's violin. The instrument was passed down to her, and from the age of seven, Cedar commenced her formal studies with Sarah Heinsohn. In 2016, she moved to the United States to study with Albert Markov. Since 2017, she has been a scholarship student at the Manhattan School of Music and has studied in the studio of Lucie Grobert since 2018. Cedar also studies piano with Gianfranco Ricci. In 2019, she was the winner of the pre-college Philharmonic String Concerto Competition, and in 2020, she was a finalist for both the Adelphi Concerto Competition in New York and the Melbourne Bach Competition. In 2020, she accepted the conductor's audition to solo with the Bridgeport Symphony Orchestra, Connecticut. Cedar has performed recitals as a soloist with orchestra in chamber music and orchestral concerts in Australia, North America, and Europe. Cedar is well known to the Steel City Strings audience. In 2017, she performed the premiere of Anne Carboyd's Australian Dawn and Bush Dance for two violins alongside Lena Lee. She recorded these and other works by Carboyd with piano for the CD Fandango Returns. For Steel City Strings, she has performed Sasson's Introduction and Rondo Capriccioso in 2019 as part of the biennial Celebration of Youth Concerts. So, Cedar, welcome to the podcast. What was your earliest memory of music? Um, so when I was younger, around probably four, three and four, my brother played a lot of classical piano. Um, he often played the Bach C major prelude on repeat. And we had he, a piano teacher named Daniel Pinkerton often came to our house very early in the morning and to give Fred lessons. And as... Fred kind of lost his interest. I gained my interest and kind of took over the lessons. And at that point, it wasn't really formal lessons. It was more just Daniel would play and I would kind of sing or we would play musical games. Um, And it was a really great introduction to classical music. Great. And so did that lead you to picking up the violin after that? Well, for initially, I just studied piano, actually, um, with Mrs. Diana Russell, actually, after Daniel. Um, and then, so that was about when I was three or four. And then I gradually gained interest because my aunt played a lot of violin. So mm. by the age of four, I really wanted to play violin, but I didn't actually get to playing violin till six and a half. But it definitely like helped me build up my ear and kind of acclimatize to classical music. What did you learn at the beginning of your musical studies? Uh, was Suzuki Method involved, for example? Um, so I definitely, I, I mean, my first piano teacher, Diana Russell was Suzuki. Um, but I initially started violin with Sarah Heinsohn, who was Suzuki trained, but she was kind of, she had a very fluid method, which suited me. So it wasn't like you have to do this, this, and this. We, we played a couple of pieces from the Suzuki books and a couple of pieces that I just really liked. And it, yeah, it was very flexible. Mm, mm, wonderful. I guess that helps at a younger age. And, yeah. and so 
you know, as you went on, you probably realized you had a bit of a, a bit of a knack for playing violin, as uh, we all know. And so when did you really know that this would probably be your livelihood one day? Um, I, so I left school at 10 um, to pursue music before I was probably like nine when I started being like, okay, maybe like I'm okay at this um, <laughs> and practicing a little bit more and just committing a little bit more. Um, but at 10, that was when I was kind of doing like two to four hours a day and going to school and it just got a bit too much for a 10 year old to handle. So that was kind of when I made that decision. Mm, and, and I think you, you might've done, you know, distance education. I've heard of violinists doing this before. Is, is this something you, you did? How did you manage that? Well, um, initially I didn't actually have never really done formal distance education. It was more just homeschooling and my mum was training to be a teacher before I left school. So Uh she was quite good at guiding me in academics. Um, and definitely there have been points in my life where music has kind of taken over from academic work. And then Mm. I've kind of realized that I really want to get my academic achievements. So I will start working harder academically. So it kind of waxes and wanes, but I Mm. never did any distance education because it's funny, even though you don't have to go to school with distance education, they're still like, it's still quite um, structured. And so Mm. now I'm doing courses through Trinity in England and um, Walsey College in England. And Mm. like, I feel like they're what distance education would have been like. So they're quite like, you know, you have your assignments every week and you have your lessons every week. And I don't think that would have really worked that well for me when I was younger. So yeah, it was very fluid. Mm, it's certainly a different, you know, schooling and education experience, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, wonderful. And I mean, that must obviously help you to get the hours in you need every day to... For yeah. sure, makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. And so as you went through all this, you know, and you're still going through some of this education, um, but what at what point did you first encounter any sort of professional music making? Because, you know, you've obviously, you know, you've got a lot of you know, interest in you as a, as a solo musician in chamber context, you know, but when was it the time that you came into contact with, you know, a professional orchestra as a soloist or did a, did a young artist program? What age did you start doing those sorts of things? Well, it's kind of hard to like discern that, to be honest, because I feel like it kind of just flows on. Like, it's like you're doing all these student concerts, which I mean, I still do like it's still student recitals most of the time, but, um, it's funny it's just then there comes a point and people are like, oh, can you play with us? And I feel like maybe it's when you are asked to play, that's when it starts feeling more professional. Mm. So me and Lena, um, one of my really good friends who also studied with Sarah, we had our debut with the Steel City Strings. I think I was 13 and she was 12 playing a duet Mm. that had been written by our cowboy and was dedicated to our first violin teacher, Sarah Heinsen. Um, and then before that, even just doing things, I did the Autumn Music Festival and Barrel with Joshua Hahn, um, which was a full recital. I don't know. There's, there's not really one point that I could pinpoint and say that was when it started feeling like professional concerts. It kind of all concerts feel the same. All concerts are stressful. All concerts you need to prepare for no matter what the audience is or what you're being like, what the incentive is. Mm, mm, absolutely. We're going to hear uh, a few recordings today, yeah. but the first one we're going to hear is your rendition of Mozart's first violin concerto, uh, the Allegro. Do you want to tell us about Mozart concerti? I mean, we, as audiences, we always hear 
you know, the fifth. We hear the third sometimes. And then we'll hear, you know, number one every so often. Yeah. Uh, what's your experience with these concerti? What, what sticks out to you the most out of all of them? Which one do you like the most? Well, I mean, I hate to say it, but I think number five is the best. Um, mm. But in terms of listening, I, I would say number one is a pretty close second for me. Um, personally, my least favorite is number three, just because I've heard it so many times. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting because they're often given to students, but Mozart is just so damn difficult to play mm. well. I mean, it's one of the things when I start working on a piece with my teacher, it's fine. Like right now I'm playing Waxman's Common Fantasy and we've had two mm. lessons on it and each lesson has been hard, but like not really, really scary. If I go into a lesson, even playing a second movement of Mozart, I am so scared because it's just so, it's so exposed and so hard. So mm. I think they're often underestimated. Um, this particular recording was done, uh, I think two years ago, maybe a little bit more in a recording studio in New York. And this is in preparation for a competition that I was submitting but I cannot tell you how many times I tried to record that Mozart concerto it was way too many times <laughs> well you certainly came out with a great take here let's hear it Cedar Newman playing Mozart's violin concerto number one in b-flat major allegro Thank you. 
So Cedar, we're going to have to try and work out here what happened to you during COVID. Um, <laughs> up until COVID, well, up until COVID, what what were you doing? Where were you? And uh, when did COVID hit? Well, from 12 and a half, I was studying in New York with Albert Markov. So I was in Connecticut for a fair bit. And then just recently, I moved to New York to study and changed teachers to study with Lucy Robert. And that was going really well. So it was interesting. For the first, like, I remember um, in December 2018, hearing one of my friends saying, you know, oh, there's this there's this virus in, in China. And I was like, oh, it'll be fine. And, <laughs> and like, Didn't we all? Doesn't matter. <laughs> And then um, suddenly it was just kind of big and we were in New York and I remember one night we called my family here and we were like, should we come home? Like it's kind of kind of getting serious. And there were only like 20, 26 cases in New York at the time. And to be honest, at that point, I did want to come home because no matter how amazing the music is in New York, home is always home. So there's always the environment here. And the opportunity, like, and the people and making music here is just so incredible. So part of me really did want to come home and everyone at home was saying, don't stay in New York. So I was kind of like, why? <laughs> um, but then one night it just, it flipped and I guess all the media had changed and we got on the phone and my dad was like, just book the first flight back. So we spent eight hours on the phone to Qantas trying to get our flights changed. And we ended up arriving on the first flight that you had to quarantine at home. So it was a pretty rushed, I, there wasn't much time to process it. It was kind of just like one day we were staying and then the next day we were going home. And initially we were meant to only be going home for a couple of months because I had I had a lot of things coming up. Um, I was meant to perform the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto with the Manhattan School of Music Orchestra as a soloist. And I was 
finalist in the Adelphi competition and I was also about to audition for a solo um, in Connecticut. So it was kind of a kind of bad timing in a way, but it was still I I wasn't upset to be going home. I don't think you're ever upset to be coming back to Australia. <laughs> certainly certainly no place like home and so you know that was that's a tremendous thought process uh to go through and obviously that travel back here would have been quite stressful rushing back here and so you found yourself back in australia in quarantine at home um thank goodness you didn't have to jump in a hotel right yeah no perfect timing (laughs) and so you came back uh we had restrictions for a few months what did you do during that time Oh, well, I was in a, a very hard lockdown for two weeks and I, I guess I just practiced. Like, actually, I got up at 4 a.m. every morning and went running because I could I could go out when there was no one around. So mm. 4 a.m., it's pretty sparse in Wilbara. <laughs> so um, I would do that and then it would just be, um, yeah, pretty much practicing all day. I got to see some of my family because some of them were still living with us at that point. So that was nice. I don't know. It was just a good time to, this whole lockdown has just been a good time to buckle down and get lots of work done. I was also mm. preparing for my El Marseille piano exam. So mm. lots of piano to do as well. So I definitely wasn't bored despite the restrictions. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. And so as we came out, uh, you've had a few recitals. Uh, what have you been up to? Uh, sometimes I... It's always busy. Um, So when I first got back, it was kind of, it was funny because I was still very much focusing on the violin. Actually, I was trying to prepare. At that point, COVID, I didn't really realize how long COVID would last. So I was actually preparing to go to Italy in September uh, 2020 to go to an international competition. And that obviously didn't happen. So... And then I was also working really hard for my LMSA. And then kind of when the lockdowns stopped, I started working with a pianist that I actually, he actually played for me in my first Sydney Stanford, Bradley Gilchrist. So we started doing a lot of work together um, and doing some recitals, especially up in St. Jude's um, in Barrel. We did a lot. Mm. Um, and yeah, we started a garden concert series which was really good so I got to play my whole Elmas program through and um, me and a cellist Isaac Davies ended up doing some duets at the Martin Yu and the Kadai so there was a lot of a lot of performance experience here and that was one of the things that I was really grateful for because now it's funny we look at New York and they're all opened up but at that point my teacher was like this is so amazing because we're all stuck in our tiny little New York apartments and you're getting to perform everywhere so really Mm. lucky yeah yeah we're all going through different things in different parts of the world and it's going to be like that for some time uh but i guess uh we got to accept it and just take the opportunities when we can uh you played with uh scs which was which was the recent concert you did um, I played for the, in the orchestra for the Celebration of Youth, which was amazing, watching Hannah play the um, Mozart Concerto Number no. 5. Um, and um, I think the last solo I did with them was maybe a, two years ago. Oh, COVID, COVID kind of whacks around the timing in my head. I yeah, was like, what yeah, is a does. year? Um, yeah. But I think I played introduction of Ronda Capriccio with them two or three years ago, which was incredible. But yeah, it's been amazing just watching them and playing with them. Wonderful. And so at the moment, 
you've had a lot of time to reflect and practice. And so you're always, and I know that violinists do this, singers do this. We all have players that inspire us. Who are the players that inspire you? There are so many. I mean, there um, probably like the standouts would be um, Max and Vengrove. I love Stefan Shakiv is amazing. Um, Albert Markov, who was my violent, the violin teacher that I initially moved to the States for. And he just, I, I didn't maybe have the mental strength to stay with him for a very long time. But when you listen to him play, it's, it's just on a whole, whole other level. Um, and then there are always the old guys like Oistrock, uh, and Oistrock Heifetz. And then also, of course, my teacher, Miss Robert, Lucy Robert, and she's just incredible. Whenever she plays, it's kind of like, how am I meant to like get there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We all, we all get a bit intimidated by people who are, you know, doing it and doing it at a top level. Yeah. Uh, we're now going to hear you play some Bach. Do you want to tell us what we're about to hear? So if Bach, if Mozart is hard, then Bach is really, really hard. Um, <laughs> this Bach is the A minor fugue. Um, it's just really, it's, it, was, it was a bit of a process for me. I started learning it in New York um, the Christmas before COVID and this recording is a long time after that, um, maybe like a year and a half after. And the fugue, it, it's just so complicated to play fugues well and bring out each individual voice um, and also then creating the contrast in the episode. So this fugue I recorded for many years and I don't think I've yet to record it and be ecstatic with it because I think Bach's just like that. I don't think you're ever like, yay, that was such an amazing recording of Bach. <laughs> like, it's just, yeah. <laughs> Always a work in progress. Exactly. Um, let's hear uh, J.S. Bach's A minor sonata fugue.
So, Cedar, let's talk about the future. I know it, it is always scary, um, but uh, what does the, let's just say, immediate future look like for you? Are you preparing for engagements, studies, any other projects? I know we're in lockdown, but uh, <laughs> what's on the horizon? Well, it's kind of, it's really difficult because, of course, my teacher wants me back in New York as soon as possible. But I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be possible at this point. Um, so right now, I feel like the main thing to do, well, I'm preparing for Gisborne in New Zealand, but even at the moment, it's hard to know if that's going to be on. Um, so everything's kind of just unknown. So my kind of response to that is just try and learn as much repertoire as possible and just work really hard and improve so that when this lockdown ends, it will be like you'll be ready to go. Um, I'm preparing for a couple of online competition submission tapes, but mm. yeah, it's difficult. Even recording at the moment, it's just really hard. Mm, mm. So, um, yeah, just lots of practice is pretty much it. Yeah, certainly. Um, a, yeah, a concert. I had a, a big concert that was programmed the whole of Sibelius and the first one with Tchaikovsky and Sagan that was cancelled right before COVID, which was quite frustrating. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's just kind of got to that point where you're planning, but you're planning with ex- expectations of everything falling apart. Certainly, certainly. Uh, it's, it's very concerning. Might I ask you, I think our, our audience might be interested in this. When you're, when you're going through all your repertoire, I know with opera singers, we, we don't sing, you know, Verdi and Puccini until very late in our careers because of our voices. Yeah. We tend to start with early music, Mozart, up until about Mozart. We don't really go too far beyond in the first few years. And then we start moving later and later. And sometimes it might take you until you're 50, until you sing Wagner, for example. So when you're a, you know, a young violinist, do you look at certain concerti, sonatas? Do you bite off you know, early music first? Do you move into the big stuff later? When when do you find it's appropriate and when are you told it's appropriate for you to play certain repertoire? Well, this is a this is a difficult topic because I think a lot of the so-called student concertos shouldn't actually be characterised as student concertos. So, mm. I mean, things like Lalo, Mendelssohn, all the Mozarts, they're, they're some of the hardest concertos. I think Heifetz was the one that said that Mendelssohn is like the hardest concerto. It has the hardest opening of any concerto. And after playing like Sibelius and Tchaikovsky and all these concertos that are seen as like the big repertoire, um, I I really don't see that Lalo and Mendelssohn are easier. Like I would, mm. in a heartbeat, I would play Sibelius before playing Mendelssohn publicly. It's just so much less stressful. So I think mm. there's a lot of stigma about these really technical works. And then a lot of young people are given Mozart and Bach and it it just doesn't sound, it doesn't sound bad. It just doesn't sound as it should because they're actually much mm. harder than they're put out. I think the great works to start with are like Viotti concertos and Road and all the caprices. And I also think there's, there's kind of sometimes a stigma, like instead of people often go for what's harder musically when they're younger, instead of going for something that's maybe a bit more technically challenged. So I feel like there's a balance between realizing when it's really hard to grasp emotionally Mm. and play it really, really well versus it just being hard technically. And I don't think, that the, the violin world in general does that particularly well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. And, and I mean, like you said with the Mendelssohn, I mean, I couldn't imagine. I, I got to say, I had a go at, in this lockdown 
playing my girlfriend's violin. Yeah. She she brought it. She I said I really want a violin lesson. She said, "All right, you know, I'll give you a lesson." And I just picked it up and and this thing just seems so foreign. It seems so foreign. I know th- when you learn things younger, it's it's much better, but it is so foreign and it is such a temperamental instrument. And so I can't imagine, right? Not that I would ever attempt it myself. Walking out onto the stage, a huge applause. People sitting there with huge expectations that you nail the opening of the Mendelssohn. Yeah. There's like two bars in E minor and you're in. And it's it's high in the register. It's a lot of pressure, isn't it? It's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I yeah. Mendelssohn is again like Bach. Like I played that concerto more more times than I can count. And the one time that I've been told that I've played it very successfully, I can't remember it. Like I was so scared. Mm. It's just like a blank. It's a full blank. <laughs> so yeah, it's a pretty, mm. pretty terrifying. I mean, it's just an E minor arpeggio, but E minor arpeggios are really hard apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the, the simplest figures and this goes for opera singing too, are, are very difficult. Mm. Uh, now, um, another future question. I mean, where do you, let's just say things go quite well in the next, you know, few years. Where do you, where do you sort of see yourself? Do you want to do the international touring circuit? Do you want to join, join a symphony orchestra? What, what do you want to do? Um, well, I mean, I think everyone, what drives most people is that thought of playing with orchestras and getting to play those big concertos. But also there are so many people and being in New York really teaches you that, you know, it's the top 0.5% that actually make it. So it's kind of a reality that you have to face, but you can try really hard to get to that level of playing concertos with all the great orchestras. Um, and then chamber music and chamber ensembles which I really enjoy like particularly piano sonatas um but even just like string quartets piano trios they're all just incredible and there's so much incredible rep for them as well um Mm. symphony orchestras there's there's an appeal of them in some ways but also I I don't think it would be for me I Mm. I've never loved orchestra I mean I can see the benefit of orchestra definitely um but it's not it's definitely not my thing, but that's no discredit to to orchestras. I mean, without them, we wouldn't be anything. So mm, mm, certainly, and and I mean, chamber orchestras and symphony orchestras are so different. I mean, on the podcast before, we've had David Vance talk about the difference between chamber orchestras and symphony orchestras, and how you know there's lots of different you know voices going on in the strings in chamber orchestras and there's a there's a, there's a need to be really tight in your playing yeah. and it's quite quite challenging so i could see how that might appeal to you certainly so that's wonderful um you see yourself you know hopefully working as a touring soloist that'd be that'd be wonderful and um, we certainly all believe you believe believe in you here in wollongong and uh-huh. and, and it's still city strings so we're, we're we're absolutely um rooting for you there so uh, tell us um what we're about to hear as our final piece and as we wrap up our podcast for today, um, tell us about Isai. So Eugene uh, Isai wrote these six sonatas, um, kind of taking inspiration from Bach's six sonatas, so I guess it's nice to have the Bach and the Isai. Mm. Um, for me, Isai is one of my absolute favourite composers. He actually, a little, like, interesting backstory he was a teacher of my teacher oh wow so i have all the scores from gingold and it's funny because 
when you listen to this recording, there are a lot of dynamics in it that are that are sometimes even the polar opposite to what's on the score. And that's because Gingold, Yuzai's um, student who taught my teacher, he said that Yuzai was always changing his mind. Like one day it would be like, this is meant to be really loud and forte and brute. And then the next day he'd be like, no, it needs to be piano and like beautiful and melancholic. So apparently he was very indecisive about his kind of dynamics and musical contouring. So yeah, I really, really enjoyed learning this work, especially with that connection to Yuzai. Um, this is the one piece out of the three that are being played today that I didn't have to record 3000 million times to get, a recording that I was relatively happy with. It didn't take me three and a half years to be able to play this. Like, um, and it's interesting because in, as you, we were talking about like student rep earlier, it's, it's seen as much harder than the other two works. But for me, it just feels a lot more natural to play than the Bach and the Mozart. Well, before we hear that, Cedar, I'd just like to say thank you for joining us on the podcast and uh, all the best for your practice and hopefully a few gigs soon for yourself. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. 
Cedar Newman there with his eyes, Sonata Number no. 4, Alamond. Thank you so much for joining us on the Steel City Strings podcast for Episode 5 with Cedar Newman. You can stay in touch with Steel City Strings via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and keep an eye on our website www.steelcitystrings.com.au. We can't wait to be back in the concert hall. Until then, don't forget you can subscribe to our digital subscription for 50% off during this New South Wales lockdown.